Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The following podcasts do not follow our usual format. They contain excerpts from interviews that didn't fall under the umbrella of the typical podcast, but we still wanted to share the information with you. Please enjoy. This segment discusses conflict of interest. Anthony DeSoni discusses that conflict of interest doesn't necessarily need to exclusion and gives an example using homeopathy and patient-centered care. Well, and there's also well, there's also such thing as declaration of conflict. So it doesn't mean that you can be that you have to be excluded from something. It, it can be the fact that like, and I'll use this as an example. My pharmacy sells homeopathy products, and I say that I it's reluct it's reluctantly because patients or parents of children request and demand it. When I sell a homeopathy product from my pharmacy, I give a disclosure or a um, disclaimer of, I don't understand how this product actually works scientifically. It actually goes against any, everything I studied at university. But some people seem to feel that it works and it could be a placebo. And a parent will say to me, it worked for my first child with teething and I want to use it for my um, second child now. Can I have it, please? So at that point, I personally feel like I've at least given some disclosure as to my you know, lack of understanding of how the product works and they're making an informed decision on that. Do I like that? Well, I, I look at the pragmatic reality of am I going to stand in the way of a, patient, uh, of a parent giving their infant something for that is self-limiting, not serious, because if they're not going to get it from me, they're going to obtain it somewhere else, however else, and not necessarily make that informed decision. Where a patient demands an antibiotic for something that might be a virus, whether it's for themselves or their child, um, that's not patient-centered care. Um, patient-centered care is not just about giving patients what they want, when they want, how they want it. Um, it's It's considering it in the realms of what's uh, you know, evidence-based, reasonable, and going to improve an outcome. Yeah. Rossiyuki discusses being professional and looking at the evidence. Yeah. Well, I, I've written about, I've written editorials about this, and uh, um, in my view, it's no different than uh, a dentist get gets paid for the treatments he or she uh, uh, recommends and then provides. It's no different from a surgeon who you seek the opinion of, uh, gets paid for that particular procedure. Uh, it's no different than a physician who gets paid for doing uh, procedures as well. Um, and you just uh, make the assumption that if they're a, a true professional, that they would put the patient's interest first. And um, so this is, this is not a unique situation. Uh, not not at all. And so why do we make such a big deal of it? Uh, well, of course, it's not us making the big deal about it, but it's, it's, uh, it is not unique. Uh, and uh, I mean, 
probably dentists are the are the most conflicted uh, about that. Uh, I was referred once to a, a periodontist, and um, for a specific problem that he fixed, and then after in the follow-up visit, he says, "Well, you know, we could do this and this and this and this and this, uh, all these surgeries, because uh, I have really good insurance that covers all of that," and 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 he knows it. Uh, and I said, "Well, what's the evidence that that makes any difference at all?" And he ignored my question, and. And he says, so, you know, we could do that. Like, we could schedule you for next week to, to do this one and then this one. And I says, sorry, no, I, I was asking, like, what's the evidence for, for you know, am I going to keep my teeth longer or, or something like that? And he ignored it again. And then he says, well, you know, we could do that. Uh, and I said, stop. I asked you a direct question. What's the evidence for that? And he still didn't ask, answer the question. So I left. Uh, that was clearly financially motivated because I have a really good insurer that would pay all those things. Uh, and and um, so you, you tell me whether that's a conflict of interest or not for procedures that have no evidence. As I found out later, you know, these, yeah. these procedures are purely cosmetic. It's got, there's no evidence that uh, it helps anything. Just because you say it doesn't exist doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. <laughs> so I, I, you know, that's why this editorial that I wrote was uh, FAQ is on pharmacist scope of practice and uh, FAQ meaning freaking asinine questions um, because it comes up again and again and again. You know, uh, what about uh, discontinuity of care? What about, uh, you know, liability? What about, I mean, these things keep, coming up it's not unique to australia or canada or anywhere they, they keep coming up and there's a good answer for all of these this segment focuses on pharmacist prescribing linda wood discusses pharmacist roles in the quality use of medicines and access to medicines with regards to prescribing the thing to think about with um, pharmacist prescribing really is this is about medicines access Right, and it's about quality use of medicines. So when when PSA talks about um, collaborative prescribing as part of a care team, it's around ensuring the, the quality use of those medicines. And, and sometimes it might mean um, you know, making uh, dosage adjustments or, or, or changing you know, changing medications. But it's it's really about ensuring that the patient has access to what they need and that they're being that those medicines are being appropriately used. And um, and really that's the core of, of, of what pharmacists do as, as medicines experts. So um, it, it really does make sense for pharmacists to be able to prescribe. Um, and I think it is important to look at the fact that this is not trying to um, uh, you know, replace any other function within the healthcare team. It's actually about augmenting the patient care. Um, we do talk a lot about patient-centred care, and I think this is a perfect example of, of patient-centred care. Chris Freeman discusses collaborative prescribing, uptake and working together. Prescribing, you know, the, the the PSA's view on that is that we believe that the first process should be a uh, collaborative prescribing model. And just to explain what that may look like in a little bit of detail, 
uh, say you've got a patient with chronic disease uh, and they've entered into a care plan with a GP. Now that's a common thing to do currently. People who are aged 75 years and plus often have a care plan for their health needs. Uh, under the healthcare homes model that's being um, promoted by both sides of government, they may think about it slightly differently, but I think the concept is accepted uh, uh, in a bipartisan way. A care plan is also part of that. And what we are suggesting for the pharmacist to be empowered to prescribe is that within that care plan, there might be situations where um, that patient's condition might progress. So for example, if someone has chronic blood pressure and their blood pressure was to increase to a certain amount, in that care plan, there would be a, 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 the ability for the pharmacist then to prescribe an additional medicine or increase the dose, for example. The reason why that collaboration uh, model is important, one, uh, I think uh, that will get it across the line for us. We, we need the support of the broader health sector to see this happen. Uh, and without a collaborative model being um, used first, that's going to be very difficult to do. The second thing is it also provides a degree of clinical governance around it so that you have two health professionals working together under an agreed plan uh, to help uh, the patient's health condition. Uh, and that in itself generates collaboration and communication between uh, those two parties. And I think thirdly, it, uh, if you look at the experience, say, from the UK where they went straight away to autonomous prescribing, there was a degree of fear from the actual pharmacist prescribers. They were uncertain about using their ability that they had uh, then had the authorization to use. And so the uptake of that model was slow. It would be my view that under a collaborative prescribing model, the uptake would be much uh, greater because they have the support of the medical practitioner in helping managing the care of that patient. Now, down the track at some point in time, autonomous prescribing may then happen. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in the first instance, this has to be a collaborative prescribing model. And I think secondly, not every pharmacist wants to be a prescriber. Uh, and that's okay. We're allowed to have differentiation in this profession. And so if your pharmacy uh, is has uh, a good working relationship with a, a general practice, you may want to facilitate that. But others may not. Uh, others, uh, business models may not uh, be uh, lend themselves to those, that sort of uh, practice either. So, Lauren Burton talks about having the conversation, how prescribing can be a polarizing topic. She also discusses collaborative prescribing, access to healthcare, and pharmacists using their full scope of practice. Yeah, I think um, pharmacist prescribing is a really interesting topic and it's a little bit polarising, but I'm really excited that people are willing to have the conversation. And um, I'm big on the word conversation. Um, I'd be a rich woman if I was re received a dollar for every time I said that word. But it's really important that regardless of some of the differences of opinion around prescribing, both within the pharmacy profession and, and externally with our um, you know, nursing and medical colleagues, we really need to think meaningfully about what it means to have pharmacists prescribing and how we can fully utilise the, the knowledge and education our pharmacists receive and continue to develop throughout their careers to ensure that um, where possible, models of prescribing uh, can be accessed and implemented for pharmacists. And there's a number of reasons for that. You know, um, PSA has a... a, a, a a very um, strong focus on collaborative prescribing where there's uh, a team-based arrangement um, and uh, that work, they're working, pharmacists are working with GPs and, and um, the 
um, medical professional who's um, looking after the patient of concern and um, it's an informed, um, predetermined arrangement where a pharmacist can um, actively uh, adjust and, and contribute to the ma- medicines management of that patient in a way that's agreed to and is uh, um, in accordance with guidelines and evidence. Um, and I think that you know when we think about access to healthcare and we think about GPs practicing the full scope of practice, this is where we can utilise pharmacists who we know have the, the knowledge and the, and the training and the education um, and the ability to um, take away some of uh, some. Um, not take away, sorry, take, take away is the wrong word, but help help support GPs um, uh, in the medicines management of a patient. Um, so I think it, that's really exciting. And I was really daunted by the whole idea of pharmacists prescribing when it was first raised as a concept, because I think we're already busy enough. But I think we need to think very carefully um, and, and very seriously about um, moving towards a co- collaborative prescribing model. Um, I think that that's the way forward. And, and I think that once we get that model up and running, that we're going to see a really meaningful change um, in medicines management for patients. Ross Siuki discusses collaborative and independent prescribing. He also discusses the pharmacy manager and how pharmacist prescribing is solving part of the problem. Dependent prescribing uh, is better than no prescribing, but I don't think it fixes most of the problems that I think we're most suited to fix. Uh, So as an example... Um, let's say that you're going to focus on hypertension. Um, by definition, with a with a dependent prescribing model, you're never going to see the patients that don't, won't, or can't see their GP in that case. And so you're going to be missing the people that probably you need to help the most because your hands are tied by, by uh, the GP. And so I, from a public health point of view, I think that's the wrong way to go. A lot of pharmacists want to go that way because it seems to be safer. But I think that's a mistake. I think it's a big mistake, actually. Uh, so, uh, but I know most pharmacy organizations, that's the way, that's what they're asking for. So it's the, the, the pharmacy mantra is always think small. Don't step on toes. Don't get yelled at. <laughs> I've just never subscribed to that very well. Uh, and, and so uh, so as opposed to think, thinking back to the hypertension scenario, if you are an independent practitioner and you can independently prescribe, that means you can set up your own case-finding mechanism to find all of your patients that have hypertension that's not well-controlled, half of whom probably have never seen their GP or don't have a GP or can't get in to see their GP. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that segment of the population, GPs never see. It's not their fault, but they never see them. So it's, they're not, it's, the, it's the not in my waiting room syndrome uh, um, because they, they often can't see beyond their own waiting room. And yet there's a whole bunch of people out there that aren't in their waiting room. And this is where pharmacists come in. So why would you not? Why would you? Why would you uh, uh, try to promote a, a prescribing model that that would would uh, leave out the most vulnerable and the people that need your help actually the most? Why? Why would you do that? Um, 
So uh, I, I really have some difficulty with pharmacy organization that, that go for that sort of second level, second tier of, of prescribing. Uh, I mean, it's better than them not going after it at all, but uh, I just think it, 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 it's, it's public health stupidity uh, by, uh, by not asking for the whole, uh, for, for independent prescribing. And uh, you can just do so much uh, more with that. Uh, being tied to a, a physician for your prescribing, that's, that's not going to help very many people. It'll help some people. And yes, it will offload um, GPs. And that's not a bad thing. But it's just not, from the bigger public health picture, it's not, it's only going to solve part of the problems. And uh, uh, I think that that's, that's, the, that's the reason not to pursue that. You know, the, the whole reason that, that, that pharmacists uh, could really come to the forefront in this is because they see patients more frequently than, than, than patients see their GP. And I know the problem that we have is that uh, a very large percentage of our population doesn't have a GP. Yeah. So they're not even in the equation right. there, right? Uh, so they're never going to be served under a collaborative agreement. Yeah. Because they don't have a physician, yes, sir. right? Uh, so you know this is one of the reasons why I think we shouldn't be settling for uh, second best. Uh, uh, but you know we do tend to bow to pressure and and uh, and ask for the next best thing. It's not always possible, but it's highly recommended that if you prescribe, you don't dispense. Uh, and uh, but. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Uh, so, um, you know, there's recommendations that uh, at least it could be another pharmacist if you have another pharmacist around, or it could even be a technician. Because uh, our technicians can dispense uh, So, with, without oversight of a pharmacist. So, um, you know, that's sort of the next best thing. Steve Morris shares on making sure that it's an integrated system. Look, I mean, the, the difference, you, you think about how prescribing's evolved in other international systems, and there's lots of contexts that are quite different from the Australian environment. So just one example. So, for example, the UK patients are registered with one GP. So that leads to my, my point around integration. So any scope of practice change for any healthcare profession has to be done in an integrated, not an isolated way. Otherwise, there is a danger of fragmentation. In other jurisdictions where, where pharmacy prescribing has evolved at a more rapid rate, is because the systems tend to, you would argue, be slightly more integrated because of their nature. And so I think within the Australian environment, it'd be how, yes, there's the issue about somebody has to be competent to prescribe and the skills that are required, but how do you ensure that we don't increase fragmentation? It becomes part of an integrated um, system of, of healthcare for, for patients. So there's some huge context-specific issues which some people lose sight of when they talk generically about pharmacist prescribing. It's, it's not to say they can't be overcome. I just think they need to be acknowledged. This segment discusses diversified funding. Diana Mill discusses different funding streams to maintain and improve the profession and not relying on just dispensing. I'm with everyone else on this one. I think that we need different funding um, streams and I think that we need that to maintain the profession and to also improve it. Um, I think that there's probably no golden bullet as such. I think we will have to access 
various different funding um, schemes, but I think not relying on dispensing and dispensing fees will also help with the way we practice as well because it will shift the focus of how we survive from supply to perhaps professional services or um, the other things that we can provide as a professional. So I'm quite pleased to see um, all the work that's been done in that space and I think that it's unfortunate in the past that we've sort of been left behind with one funding model Um, but it's been recognised that that's not viable in the future so I think I'll leave the experts to (laughs) continue to negotiate those things with the government and private health and everyone else but definitely a very important topic. This segment focuses on emotional intelligence. I discuss self-awareness and responding to others, preconceived notions, being open, the limitations of appearances, and factors that you cannot control. There was one person that I interviewed for the podcast and they really impressed me um, with their self-awareness, how they approached other people, how they responded to being approached by other people. It's quite funny because the way that... Um, when I went to speak to them, the way that I was greeted or responded to was quite unique because they didn't know me. But I guess what was unique about it was the fact that there was no um, preconceived notions. This person was open, this person was polite, and this person treated you the same way that they would treat any other person. It's quite funny. Sometimes um, as a young female, um, people can make a lot of assumptions about people by looking at them. And this person was the first person I've actually wanted to interview um, and ask about their process of self-awareness, their process of how they've come to a place where they approach people without any preconceived notions, without any stigma, and how that comes across, that gives them so much more character, um, integrity. Um, they come across as so much more trustworthy and you knew that it was just the way that they approached each individual person. And I guess that is something that I think I would like to aspire to. I would hope a lot of other people would like to aspire to. Sometimes people look at you and they can speak to you if you are a young female or um, and they can actually make a lot of assumptions about you. It's quite funny. If you actually heard someone's history even their educational background, even all of the jobs that they've had that have led them to where they are, you'd probably be surprised as to all that they've accomplished and why they have so many opinions um, and so much feedback that could really challenge things or, or make a way. But sometimes when people turn and the first thing that they look at is, uh, is the factors about yourself that you cannot control or cannot determine, by the way, I, I wouldn't necessarily change them. That's that's not where, what the podcast or my discussion is about. But I find um, as myself, as an individual, that a lot of times when people even turn to have a discussion, that there is a very uh, preconceived notion that, yes, that you must be young, that you must be yeah, that your experience must be low, your knowledge might reflect that and it comes across in people's voices in their 
and the way they carry themselves. And I wonder how much of this comes across to other people in their lives, how much of this comes across to their patients, um, how much of this is ego or entitlement. Um, but I guess to me I would say look beyond yourself and the limitations of your own experiences and mind because the world is much bigger and people have so many more experiences, so much. No one is at a point where they know everything. No one is at a point where they've achieved everything. There's always someone to learn from. There's always more to share um, and more information to gather. And I think that sometimes we can spend so much time studying books um, about all the facts, but there's a lot to IQ. There's a lot to emotional intelligence. There is a lot to our preconceived notions. Um, I remember even once having a chat with someone um, and we were just talking and we were talking about my husband and um, they're like, oh, so you're Jared's wife, but I thought Jared was really clinical. And that was really interesting because the first thing I thought was, who said I wasn't clinical and what do you actually know about me and what assumption should I make about your narrow, like your opinions and how open-minded you have not been and then about your spouse. But I think that's the catch. You are self-aware to realise that people are limited. You are self-aware to realise that people have so much more to learn but that you take it upon yourself to do that learning. Catherine Duggan shares on how you own how people will view you after you leave the room, being authentic and the Russian doll. Um, when I actually walked up to you earlier, you were um, very warm and very um, friendly and very, very approachable and very professional, like all of those at the same time. And I was actually describing to him that people are not always like that. Sometimes you might be female, you might be younger, you might be minor, any of those things, but people actually convey to you their opinion of you in their eyes and convey it with how they speak to you about how much time they're willing to give you. You're one of the first people I've met who doesn't, and I work in pharmaceuticals as well, so I see lots of people who are trained on how to deal with people, communicate, and they still can't, um, they're still not aware of how they're perceived to other people and the impressions that they give. But that was one of the first times I've actually seen that. So... Yeah, I was talking to Jared and I was saying that um, I guess what has given you your um, your EI, I guess your way to um, interact with people to not make them, yeah, it's really unique. It was the first thing I mentioned when I spoke to Jared and I was like, that was really different. I think that that thing, um, and I've only developed this very recently, um, that thing about you own how people will view you when you leave a room. You know, you own the sense that you leave a room with unless the room has perhaps changed the dynamic, you know, so unless you're in a frosty environment or you're in a very combative environment. So if you, if you own that and you think that you're empowered to know how you would like a room to feel when you leave that room, um, I think that's, that's quite a good way of thinking about it. 
Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably one of the things I, I like to think about. I've got a very big need to be liked, um, you know. So it's not just totally confidence. It's um, there's a needy part of this as well. But I think I think getting that confidence as I'm getting older to understand it's okay to own that that feeling is an empowering message to give perhaps to younger women or younger men who are working out how to be a leader. Chris Campbell and Catherine Duggan talk about taking on other people's feedback and accepting that you're not everyone's cup of tea. Do you know what I like too is that you identified people who you might not aspire to be like them, but you're very comfortable to take their feedback. You know, so if I can't quite remember the words, but it was you, it was it was an individual that you probably wouldn't have. Um, aspire to take on their characteristics mm. but you still take on their feedback mm. on how you're perceived by them so I thought that was that was really insightful to me mm. instead of just saying uh, you well do I really do I bother what they think mm. or do I bother mm. about their opinion um, it's oh no that's very valid and I need to make sure that um, and from a leadership perspective or even from a patient perspective going to have different individuals with yeah, different personalities, absolutely. different absolutely. backgrounds that have to be able to connect. Absolutely. And you're not going to please all the people all the time, which is a big lesson for an extrovert. Um, <laughs> which also, we could. <laughs> you're going to divide audiences. You know, people are going to like you and then they're not going to like you. And in pharmacy, we can be quite critical. Let's be really fair. So owning the feedback and thinking, I won't let that upset me just because it's negative is a really, it's a big life lesson, I think. Um and just accepting sometimes you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, whether I, I suppose most of it is unconscious because that's your natural state. But um, when I've done all my psychology testing about working in teams and being in a group, I'm a, um, I'm a big extrovert and um, always have been. Um, so I'm, I'm not shy, but a lot of times I've had... Um, feedback about or you need to rein it in you need to um how would I describe it you need to be careful about how you appear you know don't give too much of yourself away um and then over the years as you try to define your own professional persona the thing that I really want to be and I've decided to myself it's you know brand me is authentic so my um, absolute passion is that I don't fake it. That doesn't mean that you have to wear your heart completely on your sleeve and be very vulnerable. So when I do quite a lot of mentoring with different colleagues, people often, um, especially in our profession, which can be generalizing here, but can be quite an introverted profession, that doesn't mean that um, pharmacists aren't passionate. It doesn't mean that pharmacists aren't determined. It doesn't mean they're shy. It just means they're probably quieter than other professions around the table. I've had a lot of people asking me, um, how do I appear open and warm and um, everything that I really am, but it takes time for me to get to know that. So I pride myself on authenticity, but I've also come up with some analogies about how you can still be yourself, but you don't have to be opening yourself up for vulnerabilities. So I have the phrase of the Russian dolly, which means you can be your absolute true self as the the little dolly in the inside, if you get my analogy. But then there's still that thread of Catherine that I want everybody to see as much as possible on the outside. So perhaps unconsciously, I I do that to great effect. And I'm also very conscious that um, other people that I've 
um, watched over the years. They can appear quite fake with their authenticity. They can appear inauthentic while trying to be, you know, the extrovert. So I quite like this idea that you can be yourself as you grow in your role, that you don't have to leave that behind, but that you don't necessarily have to um, expose yourself um, to, you know, criticisms or whatever. So I suppose it's a bit of a a conscious effort to still be me. Um, but thank you very much. I didn't realise that I was perhaps as warm as you would suggest. Um, but it, I have I have really worked on that because um, the people who've given me that criticism in the past, I haven't necessarily found them to be the warmest people either. So I think, this is uh, a big judgment on my part, but I think um, while I want to rein in my extroversion and I don't want to appear emotionally incontinent to anybody, I, I would be very proud of still retaining my my USP um, and channeling that. I think it's a really good thing to be a role model um, to women and men, but as I grow older, um, to enable people to be themselves in whichever setting they are, but they can still be really professional. I don't know if I get it right all the time, but you know that would be my that would be my balance because I think being a caring healthcare professional means you can be yourself still in that interaction. Um, and I understand the corporate world, you need to rein it in a bit, but there's a way you can manage that without losing your personality. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast and send us a message.